Father, you know our hearts and you know how easily we can simply read the text. Um, yet we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we might see the Lord Jesus as we look at these words together. We pray that you would meet us, each of us, where we are and we, where we are as a body together. Please speak. Thank you that you love to speak. Please be at work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We, um, in, our, in our Sunday evening studies in Mark um, last week, we reached a very striking passage, Andy was speaking to us, where Jesus selects and calls 12 apostles to himself. It says this, Mark says, Jesus went up onto a mountainside and called to those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. But just that last little phrase there really got me. It's an interesting one, that they might be with him. Jesus' model for training, discipleship, mentoring, equipping, it seems it is not a reading list. Of course, he will teach them. They will go on and have the three most extraordinary years of theological education the world has ever known. But at the heart of it, it's not just a question of teaching. It's a question of, of watching, of following, of observing, of being with him. Which is of great relevance to Christians, it's of great relevance to, to churches. It's something we can easily get wrong. This just really matters because different churches flip-flop in different ways. So some churches, some, some streams perhaps, emphasize the fact that, that faith, they say, is caught and not taught. We learn from watching people, so let people watch. Have open lives, have transparency, open the door to your life. There's a particular kind of buzz phrase in different youth work movements or discipleship movements at the moment. They use verses like that one from Mark. That that is to be the model, that's the way Jesus did it, that's the way we ought to do it, and they've got a point. There's a sense in which faith is caught. But then in other church streams, of course, it's the other end entirely. It's all about study. It's books and essays and reading and lectures. And it's a very solitary experience. Little interaction with others, at least in the flesh. How do we grow disciples? They say, well, it's obvious. We give them a reading list. People are transformed by the renewing of their minds. So how do we renew our minds? Well, educate learning. It seems to me what's clear in our passage from this morning, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 to the end of the chapter, is that if we want to be faithful disciples, if we want to actually grow and flourish and thrive and not just limp along, then we need both. If you want to keep going even and especially in the midst of hardships, we we cannot neglect either aspect either end. We'll see it's something that is both caught and taught. We need others and we need teaching, education, we need both. And we need them because we've got fickle hearts, as Emily was teaching the children and us. We easily love the wrong things and the reality is, often Nama does win. The loves that we have for the wrong things 
do win against our love for God. That's where discipleship goes wrong. That's what we saw last week. Remember, it was striking stuff. He, he says, rather than loving God first, verse 2, we saw that we love self. How easily we are those me first Christians. What about me? Why does no one listen to me? Or we love money, and yet we're blind to it, and we justify it, and we find giving so hard. Or we love pleasure, verse 4. We just want the easy life and comfort and things to be easy and good. And you see, when those loves dominate our lives, then life is messy. If you love yourself and if I love myself, then what happens when we meet? How does Paul put it? We're boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents and ungrateful and unholy and without love and unforgiving and slanderous and without self-control and brutal not lovers of the good, and treacherous, and rash, and conceited. And isn't that just a description of life for many people? But then we saw that those wrong loves and that messy life leads to a wrong kind of ministry, a wrong kind of discipleship. So Paul described in 5 to 9, do you remember those, those ministers who seemed to look keen that they were doing kind of door-to-door visitation? They were out meeting people, but they were just in it for themselves. And so the question is, how's Timothy going to keep going? With the difficulties in Ephesus as he's pastor there, and the culture of self-love, what's the answer? We saw a glimpse of it last time. We said, to be a lover of God, verse 4, the answer is the gospel. That that flips us from being self-lovers to God-lovers. Only the gospel can change us from being self to unself. But for the verses this week, he develops his answer. And we see two things that he will say, and they are there on the screen. He tells Timothy to follow the saints and to follow the scriptures. And so I want to say, as we start this morning, that it's nothing particularly new or novel or inventive. It's not particularly exciting. There's not a silver bullet to deal with this problem of self-love and how that works its way out into our lives, into our discipleship. Actually, he says, Timothy, remember what you know. Interesting, isn't it? On Remembrance Sunday, as a nation, we remember, well, so in this passage, he urges Timothy to remember what he already knows. Because we are a people who so easily forget. Timothy, remember what you know. Follow the saints, that is, watch people. So in verse 10, Paul says, You, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. And then verse 14, I take it that's his family. But as for you, continue, continue in what you have learned of and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Timothy, follow the saints. Remember what you know. Remember whom you know. But then as well as that, verse 15, he's to follow the scriptures. Do you see, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, if the culture is of self-love, 
of love of pleasure, love of money rather than love of God. If that is our tendency, that is where our hearts go, then you must remember what you know. You must follow the saints and you must follow the scriptures. Let's think about follow the saints, verse 10 to 14. You see, I want to say that discipleship is caught. This is vital. The challenge is to watch and copy and follow and meditate upon the lives of trustworthy Christians. People that you know who are a model for you. So be with them deliberately. You see that in verse 10 from Paul. You, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Do you know this, the people that you spend time with, the people that you focus upon, are the people that you become. You become like them, you start to sound like them and act like them. We are people who are easily influenced by others. And so Paul says to Timothy, remember what you know of me. Reflect on me and my life, Timothy. He he lays bare his life for Timothy in contrast to these, I take it, these self-loving teachers, these false teachers in verse 5 to 9. You see, if your love's askewed, if Nama wins in the tug of war the whole time, then ultimately our life will show that. Because when it comes down to it, you can't really fake patience. Not really. You can't really fake love or endurance or persecutions or sufferings. Because people who love self, money, pleasure ask, well, what's in it for me all the time? And so we're not particularly patient in the midst of hardship because we love self. We're not particularly genuinely loving with difficult people. Just get in the way. We don't really endure. Or people, we jump ship before persecution comes. Or we avoid sufferings like the plague. And so Paul says, Timothy, remember me. Remember whom you know. Remember my life. And remember Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. You can read of them in Acts. In each of those towns, Paul preaches the gospel and plants a church despite opposition. In fact, these towns were home territory for Timothy. So he was personally aware of these episodes. He's saying, Timothy, do you remember from the beginning? Do you remember day one? It was always going to be like this. It was always going to be hard. In fact, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which is one of those worrying verses. I don't know about your Bible, but my eyes generally jump from 11 to 13 around there. Because most of the time we're not really persecuted. And yes, in terms of the global context, we're unusual. We've heard of that this morning. Brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And yes, in terms of church history, we are unusual. Look down the ages, brothers and sisters have been persecuted for their obedience to Christ. But here's the challenge. 
maybe I'm not particularly persecuted because my love's are skewed. Maybe I love self, pleasure, money too much, and so that's why I'm not really finding things that difficult. Maybe that's why I find verse 12 so tricky. Maybe if I loved God a bit more, perhaps I'd put myself out there a bit more. And perhaps life would be a bit less comfortable. Perhaps I'd have more awkward conversations. Perhaps I'd lose more friends. The thing about these false teachers, it's all about externals. They look impressive and life is easy and they gather a following. And You see, when you tell people what they want to hear, then they listen and they bring their friends along. So, Timothy, you need to remember to hold your nerve. You need to remember Paul, remember what a faithful ministry looks like. And never forget it. Timothy's up against people who have peddled the fact that we can have all the blessings of heaven now, that the final resurrection has already happened now. And yet for Jesus, before glory came suffering. Before resurrection came death, before the Sunday came the Friday. And so because, verse 12, we are in Christ Jesus, so to enjoy the blessings of his faithfulness, then we go the way of the cross. We persevere. Timothy, don't be sidetracked. Remember whom you know. Remember Paul and his way of life. And more than that, verse 14, Remember, I take it, your mother and your grandmother, we met them in week one. Do you remember Lois and Eunice? Those who have taught him the scriptures. The question for us though is, what does your life say to those watching you? What, what influence is your life now having over others? Our lives do tell a story. People watch and see the difference that Jesus makes to you. <coughs> People look and see what endurance looks like. Parents, your kids are watching. Older Christians, younger Christians are watching. What does your life say to others? Look back at my own life, my own story, and see youth leaders and friends and parents and pastors Perhaps you don't know it. But those who have been profoundly influential over, over me and, and my walk over the years, whose lives have impacted me greatly and who still do, but compassion with others or patience or hard work or kindness or faithfulness or boldness or, or love for a lost world. People whose hearts bleed because of those around us who don't know Christ. They weren't perfect lives. But they were honest and open and grace-filled. They modelled their need of grace each morning. You see, just as Paul's life was open to Timothy, so our lives are to be open to one another, to show the power of Christ at work in us. So take care with how you live. People are watching. What does your life say to others? And we say, that all sounds a bit keen. Um, I'm not Paul. You don't know me and my struggles. 
how, how do you expect me to kind of live like that, to persevere in, in that kind of a way? I'm not sure I'm up to that. Well, how do we keep going? Paul continues, he says the scriptures. The fuel is the scriptures. Discipleship is not just caught. It is taught as well. Don't just remember whom you know, Timothy. Remember what you know. Follow the scriptures. 15 to 17. Timothy, there are tons of things on your to-do list as you pastor in Ephesus. But this is always at the top. This is always your priority. Friends, as those who love Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, we are to be Bible people. Always. We love the Bible, not in some kind of Bible idolatry sort of way, but because there, there we find Jesus. Because there is the gospel of Jesus. He is the true word of God, and in our hands we have the word about the word. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're just looking in on Christian things or you've been following Christ for decades, this is the book for you. This is the one. This is the book for you for life. If if you don't own a Bible, I'd love you to take one away. If anybody tries to stop you, send them to me. We're to be Bible people. People who love the Scriptures because they teach us of Jesus. And Paul says... They are the way into the Christian life, and the way they are the way on in the Christian life. So you see, into in verse 15, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In them we read of Christ. In them we need, we read of our need of Christ. Even from a young age. Even from infancy. What does he mean by scriptures, though? What does that mean here? I think the answer, perhaps surprisingly for some of us, will have been at the time the Old Testament. That they would have been the scriptures, the authoritative word of God that Paul talks of here. Getting us ready for Christ. Looking ahead to Christ. Making us wise for Christ. And so in our hands, in his hands at least, he would have Genesis to Malachi. They are the scriptures able to make you wise for salvation. But when Jesus comes, he promises, of course, that he would equip and inspire and pass on authority to the apostles after him. They would, they would record and document and teach and apply. So, so where the Old Testament points to him, so the New Testament points on from him. P- Peter's letters even describe some of Paul's letters as, just in passing, as a scripture. It's the same words. But you see, it's all about Jesus. He is the heart of it. 15, he's the way into. He brings us into our relationship with God. And then 16 to 17, he's the way on in the Christian life, making us thoroughly equipped for every good work. That that is growing us up in our relationship with God. We we never graduate from the Bible. If you've been a Christian for decades, I hope it's still your book. Verse 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Now, God breathed is a word picture. It's a picture that Paul builds to explain how the Bible came into being. So sometimes we say, if we've got a secret, we say, don't breathe a word of this to anyone. Which means your breath carries your words from, from you onto others. Which means the picture is that God has breathed out his words through, through human writers, human authors of the Bible, but they carried onto the page in all their fallenness and brokenness what he wanted written. Human authors, yes, but a divine author nonetheless. God breathed is, is an extraordinary claim. So imagine you're having lunch in a bit. You're eating and chatting and laughing and suddenly the, the lights in the room just kind of go off. There's a flicker and a buzz and everyone stops speaking and it's dark. And suddenly in front of you, you find the glorious risen Lord Jesus. He's come into the room and there's a hush. And into the expectancy, he speaks and he says, I have something to say to you. You could hear a pin drop. How carefully would you listen to him? How much weight do you think you would give to what he says? And yet you see, when Paul says all scriptures God breathed, he's saying all the words of the Bible are God's words for you today. He's speaking every bit as much as Jesus coming to speak over lunch as would be God's words for us. So whatever attitude you think you would have in that lunchtime encounter, take that into the words in front of you. I read a quote recently from an atheist telling the story of conversations he had had with Christians. He uses rather fruity language, so I'm not going to um, quote exactly, but I'll give you the gist. But recounting chats he had had with Christians, asking people like you, um, do you read your Bible? And he's amazed that people say, well, yeah, but not very much, very often. And he says, if I believe that I had the very words of God in my hands, this is where the fruity bit is, I, I, I would barely put it down. It's a sanitized version. I would be reading it the whole time because I have the living words of the living God in my hands. He shames us. Doesn't he? God has given us his word about his son and we need him. We need the Bible to bring us to him and to grow us in him. And you see, Timothy had just what he needed for his situation. Remember the situation Timothy's having to deal with those who don't just disagree about minor quibbles, but, but their teaching is destructive. It's breaking churches. Timothy must guard his flock. And so in his hands, he has the scriptures, able to make him wise for salvation, but able to grow him up as well. Sufficient, useful, vital. The answer to dealing with our self-love. It's the word about Jesus in the Bible. So they're useful for teaching. That is, the bedrock for instruction and for education and it's a positive word. Timothy, teach these things. It's rebuking, which is a negative word. It's when someone needs to see that what they're doing is wrong 
and it's sinful. It's challenging those who are off beam. It's loving someone enough to have the awkward conversation, to break through comfort. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, then it's a positive again. It's, it's restoring someone, not just telling them they're wrong, but showing them what truth is, telling them what is right. Not just leaving them with the rebuke, but correcting them and bringing them back. And why do we do this? Why? Well, it's not just about academic education. It's not just being doctrinally sound and ticking a box on a piece of paper, but it's seen in how people live. End of verse 16. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's knowing how to live well on a Monday. Knowing what it means to be righteous in the office, in your family, when you're driving, or whatever it is for you with your kids. And what do they do for us? They make us thoroughly equipped for every good work, which I take it means we have all we need for all we need for discipleship. There's lots more we could say, but I just want to think about four brief applications, just rubbing this in. What do these verses particularly mean for a church like us and people like us? And they are brief. The first thing to say is we don't need novelty. This is a big one. Paul's calling Timothy to remember what he knows already. Problem is, we love new things. We love innovation. We love interesting arguments. We love freshness and originality. But actually what we need is faithfulness. We need to be faithful to the scriptures. It doesn't mean that sermons or services are are meant to be boring or predictable or samey. But there is something important and vital and necessary about again and again remembering what we know. Coming back to the truth again and again and again. If you're someone who has the privilege of teaching the Bible in, in whatever context whether it's home group or up the front or in junior church or with a Bible study with a friend, whatever it might be. You don't need novelty. Problem is we love novelty. Second thing to say is that sermons are not God-breathed. Now we need to teach Scripture. Timothy has just told us that. Scripture is useful for teaching. But sermons are not God-breathed. By which I mean, of course, we prayerfully prepare and work hard and think what does the passage say and what did it mean and what does it mean and how does it apply to a people like us on a day like this, in a place like this. But I need you to have your Bibles open, to to check and to look and to weigh and to test because the scriptures are God-breathed. But I am fallible. And again, so wherever you are, in whatever context you're hearing the word of God taught, then remember where the authority lies. It lies in the scriptures. Thirdly, all scripture is God-breathed. Which means we're not just at a buffet. 
we're not there with paper plates just picking the stuff that we like and leaving the stuff that we don't. We're not there with the sausage rolls and leaving the spinach. All scripture is God-breathed. Hopefully, if you've been here around for a while, you will notice that we have a fairly good mix of different genres, different bits of the Bible on a Sunday. We have Old and New Testament. We have different types of literature. Sometimes we have big chunks of a passage and sometimes little chunks. Just to keep the mix of the diet to different books. But sometimes, some churches do a kind of discrete passage week by week and they just decide the week before or they give the visiting preacher a choice of what they're going to preach on. But I would struggle with that because I know my heart. And I would just want to teach on the stuff that I want to teach on with my agenda and I would miss out the tricky bits I don't really get. God's given us books so it seems pretty sensible to preach through books at least most of the time. And if all scripture is God-breathed we need to have that as a church but we need to have that as us as well as we read our Bibles hopefully through the week. Which bits are we focusing in on? Which bits do we avoid? And if all scripture is God-breathed then how are we taking it in and imbibing it and feeding on it and how could this happen more for you where are the where are there gaps in your week that you could read it or can you download an mp3 from the itunes store or something and and put it onto your phone or listen as you commute when you're washing up or or exercising it takes about 50 hours to listen to the whole bible i think if you listen for 30 minutes each day that's over three times per year of listening to the whole bible if you get that chance change the translation, keep it fresh so you don't just kind of know it and don't think about it, it just washes over you but if all scripture is God breathed then we need to be taking it in regularly and we need to be taking all of it in regularly listening, learning to what God is saying to us so that we appreciate Christ because it's a word about him it means that we love him and yet having said that We need to know that Christian maturity is an active thing. It's not just a question of reading it and taking it in and listening to it and getting it into our heads. It's not just knowing the Bible well so we can answer cleverly in Bible studies. The Pharisee in us loves that. We love to have the answers to look good. But please don't ever confuse maturity with being Bible experts. Of course, it's definitely part of it, but but it's training in righteousness. It's it's how you live. It's what you're like on your own when no one else is around. It's the truths of the Lord Jesus making their way into us and out of us, into the everyday, to all the nooks and crannies of our week, changing our attitudes and our image and our identity and Being a Bible expert can be relatively easy, I guess. But it's just an external thing. Training in righteousness is far harder. It means dealing with sin. It means putting to death our natural deeds of the flesh. It means putting on Christ, trusting him each day, becoming more like him. Timothy, how are you going to keep going? When the culture all around you speaks of self-love, love of pleasure, love of money, and not love of God, how are you going to keep going? Well, I think Paul says, follow the saints and follow the scriptures. 
Wouldn't you love to be in a church like that? Wouldn't that be brilliant? A church that takes those two aspects really seriously, that, that we have deliberate, careful discipleship, we let people into our lives, we, we let them see our faults, but we let them see our, our need of grace. That we follow and watch and model for one another as a body together. And that we follow the scriptures that we love them because they teach us of Jesus and we see our need of him. That the Bible is is at the heart of of our life together and on our own. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't just call us to follow you and then leave us on our own. But thank you that you've given us one another. Thank you that we can be walking, talking, living examples of what it means to follow you. And so we pray that you might be at work in us. We pray that you would give us good models and that we might be good models to one another. That we might persevere and endure, that we might live godly lives and so not worry about persecution. And we thank you for this book that we have in our hands. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that it is able to make us both wise for salvation as we come to you for the first time and yet mature in you, and that it thoroughly equips us for every good work. We pray that we might read our Bible because it tells us of him. Help these truths, please, to go into us and to come out of us with a changed life. In your son's name we pray. Amen.